Well, good evening and welcome to Plum Creek Chapel's midweek service. And I regret to say that once again, we're doing this live stream only. Had a bit of a winter storm kind of move through the area starting uh, this afternoon through tomorrow afternoon. And just didn't want to risk people getting out on the roads with the blowing snow and uh, so forth. I don't think we got a whole lot. I'm looking out my window and didn't get a whole lot where we are, uh, but uh, they were calling for up to five, five, six inches, and we just thought err on the side of caution. So uh, I'm just going to share a short uh, uh, Bible study with you tonight as we continue our look at how to read and understand the Bible and uh, look forward uh, next week, Lord willing, to being together in person and we can kind of do some more Q&A. By the way, last week, if you haven't had a chance to listen to or watch the video of our midweek Bible study, man, it was a fantastic discussion. I really appreciated uh, the questions and uh, really felt like it was a, a good edifying time. As we talked about uh, modern day prophets and what it means to have a word from the Lord and you know what, what kind of the language that we use when we talk about the guidance and leadership of the Holy Spirit. So really, really good discussion. I always love, uh, love that with you guys. And sorry we can't to meet together tonight uh, in person. But uh, let me mention a couple of announcements as uh, we get started, and then we'll dive right in. And I want to just uh, take a short time tonight to talk about how to interpret parables. That's kind of one of the next things coming up on our agenda. We keep kind of slowly moving forward and then having to go back and when we're meeting in person and take some questions and discuss some things in more detail than I can do just simply speaking into the, the camera. Uh, but So that's our agenda for tonight is to talk about parables and we're going to look at a case study and kind of walk you through some of the common mistakes that people make when they interpret parables. So, but first of all, I want to, want to mention that uh, uh, we are really excited about my uh, new book, The Spirit of the Antichrist, The Gathering Cloud of Deception. It actually uh, hits the market March 21st, but we've already opened it up to pre-orders. And right now it's only available at notbyworks.org. And the simplest way to get there is actually just to go to the URL that we created, spiritoftheantichrist.org, spiritoftheantichrist.org, all one word. And uh, that'll tell you everything about uh, the book. And uh, man, I'm just really fired up about it. I, I think the information in this book needs to get in the hands of every human being, as many as possible. I mean, it's just uh, vital, timely. Uh, 300 pages packed full of research over, let's see, almost 40 pages of bibliographic entries at the end of the book. Um, and it really represents about 15 years worth of, of study. And, uh, and this is uh, volume one where we deal with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, fake news, geoengineering, false flags, and a host of other uh, topics in great detail. So uh, I hope you'll check that out and uh, you can pre-order it at uh, spiritoftheantichrist.org. Uh, now, also want to mention, as we always do, that our Tuesday podcast, so yesterday, it's always the day before our midweek study, uh, my uh, Christian Underground News Network podcast with Curtis Chamberlain, we talked about everybody's favorite subject, sin. And I say that it's everybody's favorite subject because if it wasn't our favorite subject, we wouldn't do it so much, right? Um, but uh, sin absolutely is a, a reality. And uh, we had such a great discussion yesterday that uh, we decided to turn it into a two-parter. So yesterday we talked about sin as it relates to 
mankind's condition, the, the real pandemic, we called it, and its only cure, which is faith alone and Christ alone. And then next week, we're going to get into sin in the life of believers, because even though positionally, once we trust Christ, we no longer are under the penalty of sin. We've passed from death to life. We shall never come into judgment, as Jesus said. The minute faith meets the gospel, when we trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone, then at that point, we're saved. Nothing can change that. Uh, but at the same time, we still know that we struggle with the old man. We struggle with the flesh. We struggle with sin. And every believer uh, this side of glory still sins. And so how, how, do we, how do we deal with that? What does the Bible have to say about that? What are, the, you know, what are the practical ramifications of sin in the life of a believer? So we're going to talk about that next Tuesday. I hope you'll uh, tune in for that. Uh, but you can check out that uh, podcast from yesterday, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, or just go to notbyworks.org and uh, click on the podcast banner there. Uh, and so that's basically some of the big announcements. Of course, we had a great discussion uh, this past Sunday at our nine o'clock hour about U Ukraine and Russia and kind of some of the geopolitical events happening before our eyes in the context of the end times. So you can check out that video as well at notbyworks.org. Uh, but for tonight, we will continue with part 17 of how to read and understand the Bible. And so uh, we have been looking at, uh, in the big picture, we've been kind of following an outline of some of the biblical principles of Bible interpretation, 24, in fact, 24 rules of interpretation. And then when we get to one that uh, warrants a little bit deeper look, we kind of stop and take a little uh, side trip to, to talk about those things. And so we've been uh, in the bigger picture talking about literary genre and how important that is in the grand scheme of things uh, to understand that the Bible, although it is one uh, comprehensive book with one divine author, capital A, author. Uh, it is made up of 66 books that transverse about 150 years or so uh, of time. Uh, I'm sorry, 1,500 years or so of time and uh, 40 different human authors on three different continents. And all of them were written within a human context. It's not like God just opened up a spigot and poured out words that landed on a page so that it's all uniform. Uh, and as we know from looking at the books of the Bible here, we can see that, you know, different books are grouped together in their style or what we call genre. And so it's important to understand those genres. And uh, we uh, will come back to that in more detail as we move through this study. And I do have an exercise that I want to work through with uh, uh, with, with our group when we meet in person uh, on identifying biblical genre, uh, but it's difficult to do that uh, via live stream. So tonight, what I'd like to do for just the next few minutes is talk about interpreting parables, okay? So uh, as we looked at number 17 of our 24 rules of Bible interpretation, it deals with parables and it says, the principal parts and figures of a parable represent certain realities. Notice the key there is principal parts and figures. Uh, and it says, consider only these principal parts and figures when drawing conclusions. And I think you'll see when we look at our case study here in a moment how this is often a, a principle that is often violated, that we just for some reason are prone when we read parables to think that every minute detail has some grand spiritual application and, uh, and it leads to a variety of, of uh, bad interpretation and, by extension, bad theology, frankly. So let's talk about parables for a, a little bit 
uh, tonight, and then we're going to take a look at one. So the word parable is actually a biblical word. It's a Greek word uh, in the New Testament. It's the word parabole, and it's a compound word uh, from para and the verb balo, and balo means to throw. So uh, that's an easy one to remember because balo, you know, what do you throw? A ball. So it's easy to remember what the Greek verb balo means. But when you add the prefix para, it means to throw beside. So the word parable came to mean, you know, something that is placed alongside another thing uh, in order to make a comparison. If you look it up in a lexicon, it means, you know, the placing of one thing beside another, a juxtaposition as of ships in a battle. So the idea here is you take an everyday reality illustration and you bring it alongside a spiritual principle to make a point. So metaphorically, a parable then is a comparison of one thing with another, a likeness, a similitude. And so uh, we, we understand that Jesus began speaking in parables as the Old Testament predicted that he would. And uh, for example, in Matthew 13, we read, why this is. It was uh, his way of making a point that uh, only certain people could really readily understand, but that everyone should have understood because the points were quite clear. So here are some key principles about how to interpret uh, parables. Number one, you have to understand the historical and cultural setting, because obviously by their nature, a parable is taking a real-life circumstance or anecdote or situation and using that to make a biblical principle. So if you don't understand the historical setting and the cultural setting of that day, it's going to be difficult to really you know, get the point. Um, and so secondly, uh, you want to analyze the immediate context of the parable. So this is a biggie. I mean, people will take parables uh, out of context, which is easy to do because they are kind of a unit, but, but like all of Scripture, they happen in a context. So as the author under the inspiration of the Spirit is weaving together uh, a story or an account, as the gospel writers do, um, they, they are putting together selected events from the life and ministry of Christ, interactions that he had, stories that he told, uh, conversations that he had, and they're doing so to make a theological point. So when they include one of Jesus' parables, it has the literary context, but it also has, you know, in the flow of thought of the Gospels, but it also has the uh, context of the setting in which Jesus said it. Uh, and so you really need to be able to look at the flow of thought and look at what happened right before it and what happened right after it. And in the example that we're going to look at in just a moment, it's really important to kind of understand where that fits. And yet people will isolate parables and turn them into an end unto themselves. And that's really where you uh, are in danger of uh, being led astray. Now, I want to mention that parables are not just um, part of the Gospels and not just something that Jesus used. The, the, the genre of parables can be found in other parts of Scripture. Uh, for example, uh, and I think we mentioned this uh, in a previous session, when Nathan confronts David, King David, about his sin, uh, he uses a parable to get the point across uh, to David. And so we, we, in a manner of speaking, use parables. Now, we don't do it with the same prophetic uh, significance that Jesus did, because the prophets of old said that he would speak, the Messiah would speak in parables. 
but we do use it in the same literary sense that if we're wanting to illustrate something, we'll come up with an illustration, and often it's an everyday illustration. Um, so, but the first two points are critical. If we're going to interpret parables correctly, we've got to understand the historical and cultural uh, setting, and we've got to analyze the immediate context. But here's the big one that people often, I think, fall prey to. Do not become obsessed with the details. Do not become obsessed with the details. I'm going to illustrate that in, in just a moment. But remember the, the grammatical principle of interpretation that we looked at earlier. Only the principal parts of the parable are intended to make a point. Uh, it's, you're, you've got one point in mind. You're trying to illustrate it. So you tell a story. And it's kind of like the story with David and Nathan. You know, when, when Nathan was trying to confront David with his sin with Bathsheba and killing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and so forth. And so he, uh, he tells a story about uh, the little pet lamb and, and how the, the king had all that he wanted at his disposal, yet he took this other man's one and only pet lamb and used it to feed uh, a, a, a guest. And uh, David, of course, gets angry about that. Who did that? I want to know. And, and then Nathan says, you are that man. And so that's the main point. David was David is a sinner. He had committed an atrocious sin. And, and Nathan was wanting him to confess that, to recognize that he had done something wrong. That was an offense to uh, his holy God. And so uh, all of the other details about the travelers and the you know, the, the, the lamb and all the details, those are only all part of the flowery nature of the story to zero in on here's the point. And that's something we have to keep in mind with parables. I've seen a lot of bad theology uh, emanate from people picking apart parables. And the problem with that is, as we've talked about going way back in earlier days of, of this study, the two basic approaches to Bible study, to Bible interpretation are the literal grammatical historical approach, LGH, and the allegorical approach. And the fundamental difference between the two is the LGH method originates from the words on the page, right? So we let the words speak for themselves. Meaning resides with the author, not in our minds. Our job is not to uh, determine the meaning, it's to discover the meaning. The meaning exists inherently within what the author had to say. Whereas allegorical interpretation, the allegorical method, basically is looking for the hidden, deeper sense, the, the mystical meaning, the spiritualized meaning. And so when you apply that to a parable, of course, you've got a whole fertile ground full of details that can have unbelievable imaginary meaning that really turned the interpretation into something uh, uh, quite impressive if meaning gets to arise, you know, arise from our own thoughts. And therefore, the more creative the interpretation, uh, the more powerful uh, it becomes. The problem is it's incorrect. And today, what sells books and what makes uh, speakers famous, frankly, and within evangelical Christianity is their ability to mishandle the Word of God. Now, they don't know they're mishandling it, and certainly their disciples and people that are reading their books and thinking them to be such great scholars don't understand it. But basically all they're doing is taking these words in the Bible and assigning this creative, fantastical meaning to it that often sounds good. 
And so uh, that's not the proper method. The method is to let the text speak for itself. And parables are particularly uh, easy to mishandle in that way. And then, so the, the, the bottom line is we want to identify the main idea or the main principle of the parable. So uh, I've chosen as a case study uh, Matthew chapter 25. And I, I just, I didn't take the time to copy and paste into a fancy slide these verses, but I did want to be able to put something up on the string screen. So I just cut and pasted, uh, uh, or just kind of clipped, if you will, uh, from my uh, Logos Bible software, the passages. So sorry that it doesn't look particularly fancy, but at least you can follow along with me when I read. If I was doing this in person, I would probably just have everybody in the audience, you know, turn in their Bibles and like we typically do. Uh, when we go off screen. Uh, but since this is strictly live stream, I didn't want you looking at a blank screen the whole time. So follow along with me as we read this parable. I'm just going to read it through, and then I'm going to go back, and we're going to kind of follow these principles that we just talked about here, uh, look at the context, look at the historical setting, and then kind of try to identify what the main idea is. So uh, it's hard for me to just dive right in and read it without giving you a little bit of... Uh, context up front. That's just my nature, but we're going to, to just read it uh, cold here. Uh, then the kingdom of heaven, this is of course Jesus talking, which you could tell in, in uh, by the red lettering here. Uh, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were foolish, I'm sorry, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for, for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. I should have turned off my highlighting there. I didn't mean to necessarily highlight that last phrase. I had done that in a previous uh, teaching, and I just hastily clipped this. So uh, that is a powerful statement there. We could talk about that too, but I didn't necessarily mean to highlight that for you guys. Verse 11, afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And then Jesus concludes this parable, as is often the case, with essentially its own, its own interpretation. He, he applies it. And you can tell that by the word, therefore, you know, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, this is a very uh, well-known uh, parable. It's often referred to. There's a lot of richness to it, a lot of things that are a part of it that, boy, we, uh, we love. I love the part about, you know, the bridegroom is coming at midnight. You know, there's a great old gospel hymn, The Midnight Cry. It's talking about the return of Christ. And it, it's, it's based on this uh, uh, verbiage here from Jesus uh, parable. Uh, obviously, the concept here of I do not know you is a, is a common 
phrase in in the New Testament with Jesus speaking, talking about uh, the difference between those who know Him by faith and those who may have had outward righteousness, but it was self-righteousness and they never actually had the kind of perfect righteousness that, that, Christ, that, that God demands by trusting in Christ. So, so you see that phrase, you know, I do not know you. Um, but let's go back and, and look, first of all, at the historical context and setting, as we said. Well, this was obviously first century Jewish culture. Very common uh, practice for weddings was for there to be a, uh, a wedding supper at night. And uh, the uh, people would be kind of, kind of called attention to and watching and waiting. And then the announcement would be made, the bridegroom is coming. Everybody get ready. The bridegroom is coming. And of course, at night, they, they didn't have electricity. They didn't have lights and flashlights and things. So everybody had their uh, their torch, their, their, their lamp, if you will, of oil and fire that allowed them uh, to see. And so they would gather and get ready for the appointed uh, moment. And obviously they didn't know exactly when it was going to happen. And in the parable, Jesus is contrasting those who wisely brought plenty of oil in case the bridegroom is tarried uh, and takes longer than they thought versus uh, those who didn't. So then the bridegroom comes and uh, some are ready to go meet him, some aren't, because they didn't have enough oil. So Jesus, of course, summarizes at the end, hey, be ready, watch, be watchful, right? Uh, but that's the context. We see other uh, references uh, that Jesus makes to this type of Jewish wedding culture. For example, in Matthew 22, I don't have it on the screen, but you remember the parable, the, uh, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, and he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. And so he sent out other servants saying to tell those who were invited, Look, I've prepared my dinner, I've, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went on their ways, one to his own farm, one to another business. They seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. When the king heard about it, he was furious, so he sent out his armies to destroy those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go to the highways and find as many as you can. Invite them to the wedding. So the servants went out to the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. Remember, that's from a human perspective. The, the Jews had this hierarchical system where you know, people that were the dirty, rotten, filthy tax collectors and harlots and sinners were the bad, and the rest of us that were, had it all together were, were good. And he said, hey, invite them all. Uh, and the, the wedding hall was filled with guests, but then the king came in and he saw one of them who did not have on a wedding garment. And he said, hey, how did you get in here? I'm paraphrasing now. And the king then, you know, kicked him out and he didn't get to, to come to the wedding celebration. So uh, this was something that was a common cultural thing, weddings and the associated activities that come along with them. And Jesus often used it to uh, make a point. Now, the point in chapter 22 of Matthew is different than the point here in chapter 25 of Matthew. But uh, for that, we need to look at the context. So you, know, you need to understand a little bit about the historical culture, and then you need to go back to the immediate context of the parable. And obviously, in Matthew 25, I think you probably know this is in the context of the Olivet Discourse, which we've talked extensively about in our Sunday morning What Lies Ahead series, uh, because it is Jesus' greatest teaching on the end times. In fact, it's the most comprehensive teaching on the end times found anywhere uh, in Scripture. And in one place where it kind of gives a blow by blow. So you need to go back and look at that context. 
And without getting in too much detail, it would be very easy for me to just really go through and, and preach this whole Olivet Discourse because it's one of my favorite sections of Scripture. But basically the context is the disciples uh, ask, what will be the sign of your coming? Because Jesus has just cursed the temple. He's uh, overturned the tables of the money changers. He's actually looked at the temple and said, look, that thing is going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. Well, the disciples are getting kind of antsy because this is middle of the week. This is Wednesday, in fact, of Passion Week and, and, and of the Passover, which is coming up on Sunday. And they thought, wow, this is going to be it. Jesus is going to take the throne and the full messianic prophecies are going to come to fruition right here in our day. What a blessing. And uh, Jesus is trying to let them know, no, no, it's not going to happen that way. There's going to be a delay. And uh, I have to, you know, suffering comes before, uh, you know, the crown. The, 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 you know, you've got to, you've got to, humility comes before honor, right? You've got to, he's got to pay for the sins of the world and be sacrificed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world before he can sit on the throne of his father, David. So, uh, so but in response to their question, as they're getting antsy, saying, well, okay, if the temple is going to be destroyed, what's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of this age? And so he launches into this lengthy sermon on the top of the Mount of Olives. That's why we call it the Olivet Discourse, because he gave this sermon on the Mount of Olives. And he answers the question. And the first 14 verses of the, his answer are all general signs that relate to that future seven-year period right prior to his return. This is all about the second coming. This, this is not about the rapture. The church is not mentioned yet. The church hasn't even come into existence yet. So Jesus is speaking only of the future, his future return to inaugurate the kingdom, which is what the disciples were obsessed with. They wanted to know when the kingdom is going to come. So the first 14 verses, he gives general signs that correlate perfectly with the book of Revelation and the seal judgments and all that's going to be happening during that seven years. Beginning in chapter 15, sorry, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 24, Jesus then gives more specific signs, specifically the abomination of desolation, which he quotes Daniel about that and says, when you see that, it's getting very close because at that point, his return is only three and a half years away. So he says, watch for that. Then he gives several other signs and then he comes down to chapter 24, verses 29 to 31, and he comes back. He, he, his return takes place and he sends his angels to gather the nation of Israel back into the land supernaturally. And at that point, he has returned. So by the time you get to verse 31 of, of, of Matthew 24, you know, he's answered the question. Here's what to look for. Here's all these signs. Here's how it's going to happen. And here's what it's going to look like in the moment when it does happen. But then he goes on in this sermon, to, like a good preacher, to give some illustrations and some application and to answer the so what question. So what do I do with this? So he starts out with the parable of the fig tree uh, when he says, look, you know, you know, when you see the fig tree begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these signs that I've just talked to you about, that I've just given you, you know that my return is near. In fact, he says, the generation that is living when they see all of these signs take place will be the very generation that sees my return. That's what he says in Matthew 24, 34. And then you get, starting in Matthew 24, 36, you get into a series of what I call watchfulness passages, where each section gives another sort of illustration, or you might say parable. Some of them are more parabolic than others, but they're illustrations or analogies in which he's saying, you know, be ready, be watchful, look up, be watchful, right? So the first one is the, uh, a general 
uh, statement uh, in re reference to Noah and a comparison to the times of Noah when the people were completely uh, unresponsive to the warnings. Noah had been warning and shouting from the rooftops, uh, from the ark tops, <laughs> uh, about being ready, and people turned a deaf ear and didn't hear it. And so, consequently, they were caught off guard, and they, the flood came and swept them away in judgment. And Jesus, at the end of that little section, which is tw Matthew 24, 36 to 44, says, Therefore you also be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. And then he, uh, he goes on to tell a specific illustration about how for some people alive during that future time, just before his return, uh, his return is going to happen sooner than they thought. And he tells the parable of the faithful servant and the evil servant. He says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his house to give them food in due season? Blessed is the servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you, he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to you know, act inappropriately and so forth, then you know, he's, he's uh, going to end up getting kicked out. So he's not going to get into the kingdom. He'll go where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in the case of that evil servant, he thought, oh, i got plenty of time. Oh, he's delayed. I've got plenty of time. I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. And yeah, he's coming, but it, it's not urgent. And so, you know, Jesus says, don't be like that. Don't be someone who thinks, uh, you know, that his coming is delayed. Because you might find yourself caught off guard when he comes back sooner than you thought. But there's also the opposite. And that leads us straight into the parable that we just read a moment ago. And remember, there are no chapter divisions in the original text. So even though the parable of virgins goes into Matthew 25, it really is just continuing the same flow of thought. And so Jesus, in the parable of the ten virgins, is pointing out, using a parable, that for some people who are alive in that future seven-year period prior to the return of Christ, Christ's return will occur later than he thought. Now, for those of us that have studied dispensational eschatology for many years and understood the literal grammatical plan of the ages that God has outlined so plainly in Scripture, it's hard for us sometimes to divorce ourselves from the numbers and the categories. And, you know, we think, well, the tribulation is seven years. It starts with the signing of the peace treaty, Daniel 9, 27. It ends with the return of Christ. The children of Israel easily should know that. It's plain enough in Scripture. So certainly after the rapture, they could look at their calendar, mark the date, or certainly when the, when the peace treaty is signed, they can mark the date, and they ought to be able to easily know that seven years later, Christ is going to come back. Well, it's not going to be like that for them in that day. They're under incredible delusion, incredible deception. All hell is literally breaking loose on earth. Satan's wrath is being poured out. God's wrath is being poured out. They're not exactly you know, setting their calendars or studying in-depth eschatology classes or reading books like What Lies Ahead. Uh, they're just trying to survive. And uh, it'll be a new world order. It'll be different. There'll be a one-world system politically, religiously, and economically. And they will, even though there's all chaos going on, there will be a new normal, a totally new globalist order that's taking place uh, during that seven-year period. And so for some people, they're going to uh, be caught off guard because, you know, they're, uh, you know, thinking, oh, this is okay. This is the new normal. I've got plenty of time. Boom, that seven years goes by like that, and he comes back. And they haven't done the one thing that's required, which is faith alone and Christ alone. For others, you know, they, they, will, uh, they will 
think, oh, well, he, you know, he could come back any day. I'm going to make preparations. They're going to move to a mountaintop or whatever they're going to do. And then it just, he's not coming back. He's not coming back. Days turn into weeks. Weeks turn into months. They think, wow, he's just not going to come back. And they're not prepared. And then he finally does come back and boom, they're caught off guard. So that's, that's essentially the context of the parable of the wise and foolish servants. And then here's where, you know, we've got to implement some of these principles about not becoming obsessed with the details. Because I have heard this taught where there, people are trying to identify, you know, the symbolism of the lamp, the symbolism of the oil, the symbolism of the virgins, the symbolism of the cry that's heard at midnight, uh, you know, the symbolism of the door. And it's easy to do because this is, even though it's a parable about the second coming of Christ, and it's addressed to the future nation of Israel. Remember, earlier in the week, uh, and Matthew records this, I think, in chapter 21, uh, Jesus has said to the current first century Jewish leaders, you're not going to get the kingdom. I'm taking it from you, and I'm going to give it to the future nation of Israel whose leaders respond in faith and believe. Remember, Paul talks about this in Romans 9 through 11, that someday, um, you know, uh, people, the Jewish people are going to believe the gospel, and having believed the gospel, then they're going to cry out for his deliverance at his return, and, and they're going to cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in fulfillment of Psalm 118, and then they're going to get regathered into their land. And so, uh, you know, this is clearly a second coming uh, context, but in this, to the extent that when Christ returns, you're either a believer or you're not, the believers get into the kingdom, and this is true of Jews and Gentiles alike, and the unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire. It's also a salvation message. There's an urgency to it. Uh, and so it's understandable that people would want to make application here about uh, personal, individual, eternal salvation, and especially when you see things like the door was shut and I never knew you. But let's not, let's not forget. I mean, that might be a good cross-reference to make as an illustration, but I don't think that's the ultimate point of Jesus' parable here. His parable here is, you want to know when I'm coming back? I'll tell you. After I've told you, now I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you. Be ready. So really, the, the interpretation, if you will, of this parable in its context can boil down to really two words. And this, is, this comes back to point four of how to interpret parables. Identify the main idea. And the main idea, as with the ones in the preceding context, is be ready. Be ready. Um, and now if we want to apply that to the present age, we can certainly make some parallels to some of the watchfulness passages that relate to the rapture. And we can recognize that the rapture is imminent, the Bible teaches, meaning it could happen at any time, and that we ought to be ready for that and be uh, thinking about it and looking for that blessed hope, you know, Titus 2.13. Uh, but that's, a, that's at the application level. This passage is not talking about the rapture directly. He's talking about the future return of uh, the Messiah. So all of these details, which add some, some real uh, you know, uh, meat to the illustration. It's, it's fun to listen to. People, especially in Jesus' day, understood it. They could relate to this notion of the cultural setting of a, of a you know, wedding. And, and so they would have been on the edge of their seats listening. But when they get to the end, they would have gotten it. Jesus is basically saying, don't be like one of those foolish virgins. Be ready. 
And you know, the, the whole Olivet Discourse really is a, a challenge to them to be ready. Just as many Jews in the first century completely missed and were blind to his first advent, even though the prophets of old had talked about it in great detail and they should have recognized it. Similarly, in this future seven-year tribulation, many Jews, the Jewish people, many will be blinded and miss it again. And he's challenging them, don't make the same mistake twice. And so, uh, again, bottom line is this parable about the bride, uh, the, ten and foolish, uh, the ten virgins, the five foolish and the five wise. All it's saying is be ready. Be ready. There's no hidden meaning here to the lamps or hidden meaning to the oil and so forth. Uh, those are just part of a historical context and a cultural reality that, that people understood. So hopefully that helps you, you know, by kind of walking through at least one passage there. Uh, but be aware of these principles when we, when we talk about uh, parables, when you come across parables. Uh, ask yourself, what point is Jesus, and usually it's Jesus, or if it's in other parts of Scripture, what point is the person giving the parable trying to make, you know? Uh, and so, for example, in Matthew 13, we've got the parables of the kingdom, and that's really some rich material, and it's, it's uh, uh, you know, great detail there as well. But what's the point? What's the point? And uh, I would summarize uh, all, thir all, all of the parables of the kingdom that are, in Matthew's account anyway, recorded in chapter 13, uh, as in, in each, each one has its own big picture meaning, but the overarching principle, since they're all kind of lumped together, is that, look, this kingdom that's coming is going to be different than what you have thought it is. It's parables about the kingdom, and, and it's a mystery, not a mystery form of the kingdom. The text never says that in Matthew 13, but just mysteries about the kingdom. Well, what do we know is a mystery? A mystery is something previously undisclosed that God is now revealing. And Jesus is beginning, in fact, that's when he begins to use parables, uh, is beginning to explain that the, the kingdom is going to be different than what you thought. Now, of course, replacement theologians and covenant theologians and, uh, you know, amillennialists and people that don't, I believe, don't uh, consistently interpret God's word from a literal, grammatical, historical perspective, they point to that passage and say, see, Jesus is saying that the church is the new kingdom and the church has replaced Israel and the church is this mystery. Well, the church is indeed a mystery, but not in that way. The church is a mystery because in this present age, it is God's divine uh, people that are serving his purpose. And I talked about that over the last two Sundays at our nine o'clock hour, the purposes for Israel in God's plan of the ages and the purposes for the church in God's plan of the ages. So uh, keep the big picture in mind. Uh, I'm going to uh, cut it off a little bit uh, short here um, uh, and, and just kind of end it there just so it's a nice, uh, neat way to kind of bookend our topic for tonight is how to interpret parables. And next week, uh, we will come back uh, to it, Lord willing, in person, and we'll be able to kind of dissect it a little more, maybe look at some other parables and take your questions and so forth. Uh, don't forget to go uh, take a look at Spirit of the Antichrist, The Gathering Cloud of De uh, Deception. I really believe this could be the most important book I've ever written. It's my 10th uh, book to publish, and, uh, and I just, I wish, like I said, I could get it in the hands of every single person uh, because the information there is so timely, so relevant for what's unfolding before our very eyes. And uh, I encourage you to check that out at spiritoftheantichrist.org. Uh, orders will begin shipping March 21st, and I'll just let you know that we're going to ship out uh, the first orders will be all of our pre-orders. 
So on that, when we get our inventory, uh, the people that have pre-ordered it are going to get theirs right away. The orders that come in March 21st and later, we'll, we'll, we'll ship those as soon as we can, hopefully the same day, but, but these others are going to come in uh, earlier. So uh, only available at notbyworks.org. Uh, check it out, and I hope you have a great rest of the evening, and we will uh, look forward to seeing everybody again uh, next time. Thanks, and God bless.